Thanks for pressing play. Gloria Huang was a longtime cyclist who never wore a helmet. She thought they were too bulky, inconvenient, and space-agey looking. Then a friend of hers died in a bike accident. She decided something had to be done about helmets. And Gloria was also very savvy. She'd been working for five years inside uh, the legendary Tom's Shoes. And so she could see that there was a new mobility category or really categories being designed right in front of her eyes. Things like scooters, e-bikes, hoverboards, e-skateboards, and more were starting to take off. And this niche NATO in mobility might just be opening a door to a new kind of helmet niche. One that the sci-fi helmet makers who make helmets for, you know, downhill uh, mountain bikes and uh, road bikes and such could not see. So Gloria went to work and with a very small amount of money and a Kickstarter campaign, she started Thousand Helmets. And I'll tell you, I got to know her because I became a customer and I love my Thousand Helmet. They are retro and yet modern in design. They exceed safety standards. And I could tell you they're legendarily comfortable because sometimes I walk into a, a restaurant or a store or the house wearing it and I don't even know I still have it on. And that's how I discovered Thousand. I bought it after I bought my first e-bike because I had the experience that I think a lot of people have is you take your sci-fi helmet, you put it on when you have your cool retro e-bike and all of a sudden you look like a dork and you need a new helmet. And that's how I got to know Thousand and find out about Gloria's story. Well, it turns out she's a category designer and entrepreneur on a mission to design a legendary product, company, and category at the same time. And her mission is nothing less than saving lives. And as you'll hear on this episode, I have a deeply personal and painful connection to Gloria's mission. She's super inspiring. Gloria Wong's the real deal, and I think you're going to love getting to know her. We're sponsored by my friends at Oracle NetSuite, the number one cloud ERP company. Visit netsuite.com slash different today to get your free product tour. netsuite.com slash different. And today, data matters more than ever before. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, and the letter E. And I also want to remind you that we have launched our new uh, newsletter. It's called Category Pirates, and it is the newsletter authority on category design and category creation. Go to lockhead.com today, and you can sign up for Category Pirates. And now, hey-ho, let's go. So, Gloria, it is an absolute joy to meet you. How are you? I'm great. It's, um, it's a great day. So, can't complain. How about you? Well, I'm very excited to, to meet you. I think what you've done as an entrepreneur is truly inspiring. As a user of your product, uh, me and my family absolutely adore our th thousand helmets for a bunch of reasons that I'm um, looking forward to sharing with you. But I'm curious, you know, we, we talk a lot about in the entrepreneurial startup world, the difference between a mission-driven entrepreneur and a mercenary-driven kind of entrepreneur. You feel like you're on a mission to me. Um, what's the mission that you're on with Thousand Helmets? Yeah, um, well, good observation. Uh, 
I can tell you a little bit about my personal story. So it kind of feeds into what our mission is. What where it came down to is I've been a longtime bike rider, but during that time, I never wore a bike helmet, just like a comment you made before the show started. is like automatically when you put a helmet on, all of a sudden your, your dorkiness level rises 10 degrees. And I never considered myself particularly self-conscious, but apparently I was about that. Uh, so during the time I was riding a, wearing um, a bike rider, I really never wore a bike helmet. But what happened was a friend of mine passed away from a bike accident. Uh, it was a headfirst accident in New York City, wasn't wearing a helmet, and passed away on impact. And when I heard that story, I just um, I just knew I needed to go again find a helmet to be safe to my be safe for myself and the people around me. So I went out into the market to try to find a helmet I liked, and I found a bunch of things that I thought were kind of passable looking, but nothing I just truly wanted to wear. And my, my background is actually philanthropy. Uh, I worked for Tom Shoes before this in their philanthropic department. So I got the idea, you know, if you make a helmet people actually want to wear, I really felt like you could help save a lot of lives. Um, and beyond helping save a lot of lives, um, one of the big kind of core things in our brand, our values is sustainability. I really believed in urban mobility and this alternative transportation movement that was happening. And I always heard the number one reason people don't ride a bike or a skateboard or a scooter to get around is they just don't feel safe. So for me, I really believed if I could create a product that people wanted to wear, that I could solve a lot of problems, I could help save lives, and I could get people moving around cities in a different way. Well, Gloria, as a um, uh, plus or minus six-month customer and user of your uh, legendary product, I can tell you, mission accomplished. That's awesome. Again, super appreciate it. I think for me, hearing people who are getting into e-biking or cycling or whatever it is versus people who have been riding for a long time. That's the thing that makes me really excited. Again, getting new riders into to, to doing what we're doing. Well, you've done such a wonderful job. It really is extraordinary. And I, I, I consider you an innovator and what I would call a category designer. You're pioneering a new category of helmet. And I, I wouldn't have thought that, um, that uh, biking and now we call mobility. I want to get into the mobility space with you and, and get your thoughts on it. I'm fascinated by it. Um, but I'm very curious, like uh, helmets have been around forever. Yeah. How did you see an opportunity to create sort of a whole new different type of helmet? And what I would argue is a different category of helmet. Yeah. And that's a good question. I think for me, it's more, I had a customer insight because I was the customer um, if you go on the shelf full of helmets and nothing fits you, you can see that everyone's kind of competing off of price to value. But as a consumer, you have a whole different set of customer needs and problems than what's on the shelves. And you kind of know that there is something out there for you that needs to be created. So I think maybe going from that, that the customer insight was all of the products on the shelf currently are addressing a different problem that I currently have. And my problem as a recreational writer is I want convenience in my helmet. I want safety. I want comfort and I want style. Um, I don't need a lot of ventilation. I don't need the latest technology because I'm not going 50 miles every day. I I really want something that'll help me get around. And I want something that seamlessly fits into my lifestyle. So, so for me, it starts with a consumer insight. Yeah. So let's maybe drill into that a little bit. Um, all legendary entrepreneurs, I believe, and certainly ones that create and design new categories, as I believe you have so elegantly. Uh, and elegant is a word that comes to mind when I think about you and your company and your products. Can you sort of take me inside, pop the hood more on this customer insight? How did you see something in what I think to most people look like a very mature market category 
with giant in, entrenched players who, who build great products. I had a crash on a mountain bike years ago, and my doctor told me in no uncertain terms that, terms that my Giro helmet probably saved my life. And so these are great products and great companies. And I don't know that most people would have seen uh, a hole in the market category for the opportunity that you've now capitalized on. And so tell me about those insights. I guess for me, I saw a big opportunity just because I saw those players. Because you've got like a, a, a couple of large, um, let's call them helmet manufacturers to begin with, that are doing above $100 million in revenue. Their main kind of value proposition is they got a large distribution and they got great product from an R&D perspective. But when you get that large, you do get entrenched in terms of you start making products for a retail buyer. So you start trying to hit a price point, a color, features people tell you, and, and to a degree, you kind of lose where the customer is on all of that. So what I saw when I, again, saw that kind of um, shelf full of helmets when I'm just trying to find something, I, I, I saw a bunch of helmets that were being sold to a retail buyer, but they were not being sold to an end consumer like me. So for our perspective, when we tried to design our first products, it was really from, we call it like a human-centered design perspective. So we, we didn't really look at the market from a PLM perspective and say, okay, what price points do we need to hit? What color? What are the features? We just started asking customers that are recreationalist writers and commuter writers what they valued most in a helmet. And you have real conversations with people. And the things that people tell you are beyond functional needs. They're not just like, I need um, this weight of a helmet. I need this specific material. That's not, again, what people were talking about. People are talking about functional needs like... I want something that's really convenient. I don't want to have to take my helmet into my uh, office every single day. I want an easy way to lock it up. Or I want something, honestly, that's like safe and really slim and sleek because I want it to kind of fit in and I want it to match my bike. And I think also an underlying thing when you have these customer conversations and really human conversations, you also pick up there's an emotional barrier to why people don't wear helmets. And it's something what you were talking about, Chris, where it's just like you kind of just feel a little stupider. Like you you bought a bike to feel freer. You bought a scooter or a skateboard to feel more free. And all of a sudden you put this helmet on, you feel like you're 10 again and your mom told you to do something. So how can you create a product, but also a brand around it so you feel like now this product and this larger brand connects to who you are as a person. So beyond just the functional needs, it's also learning that there are emotional needs to a product that you have to help people over time. Yes. And, and one of them, and uh, I try to be as brutally candid with myself and hopefully others as possible. I think many of us have some vanity. Uh, certainly I do. You don't want to look like a dork. And when I got my first e-bike, and it was this really cool, it's called a juiced bike. Maybe you're familiar with yeah, that brand. Yeah, good company. Very cool. Are they? I don't know much about them. I just love the product. Yeah, we, and, we, we, we partner with them. I also think it's super cool looking, that kind of moped style bike. Yeah, the, we have a juiced one. We have a rad one. And we just bought a Super 73. So we're sort of trying them all. It's become a category that I'm obsessed with. And, you know, during the pandemic, we're pretty locked down around here. I sure as shit aren't getting on a plane anytime soon, unless God forbid I have to, and we're not going on vacation. So why not buy a few e-bikes, test them out, get used to them and have fun with them. Um, but the second you sit on a juice bike, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm a guy and I'm an old punk rocker and a boxer and martial artist. And so like to pretend I'm a tough guy. And so you sit on this cool thing that looks like a really, you know, bitch and moped and then you put on this, in my case, 
white Darth Vader helmet and you immediately look like a donkey. Yeah. (laughs) And you saw that opportunity or how, how did you see that opportunity from your eyes? Well, I mean, if, I think what you're even describing is a point of friction. Again, you're buying this juice bike or this Super 73 because you're trying to embrace this new lifestyle. You want to get around town because you want to be more free. Or again, like you're saying, you're passing the time during COVID. You think it's a really cool, interesting category. So you're just trying to try all the products in it. So again, you, you, you've picked a choice from a lifestyle perspective that you want to embrace. Now you go out and you get a helmet. And largely because of how helmet companies are set up, especially in the U S they're, they're very commodity driven. Uh, the way their business models operate is there's very little room for marketing. There's very little room to talking to the customers. It's all kind of selling B2B. So, so you've got this category that is disconnected inherently with the products that they're trying to, um, attach to. So at, at the end of the day, it's trying to ask yourself the question in the moment, well, what are the friction points that customers experiencing for you? It's just that, all of a sudden you were trying to embrace this lifestyle of riding bikes around town and you just felt stupid doing it. So what is the opposite of stupid? And and that's kind of, again, that's a little bit of how we kind of reverse engineered building our initial products was like, well, what's a cool helmet? Um, Cool helmets are maybe vintage scooter motorcycle helmets you find in the fifties and sixties. A cool helmet is, you know, um, that that picture of Steve McQueen riding in that bullet, <laughs> like, yeah, and with that iconic red, red, and blue, and it's super slim. So you're saying, okay, then it's not that the category of helmets are uncool; it's that emotional feeling that they've attached because it's it's compounded as a as a commodity category for so long that's uncool. So how do you kind of strip that away and really focus on a beautiful shape that people can attach themselves to, and again, this larger brand that people can resonate with? So. Not only do you feel no friction with riding with a thousand helmet when you're on your juice bike, your super 73, you actually feel like a thousand helmet enhances your whole experience because now you feel like you can kind of um, express your personal style. And you know, Gloria, as you say that, my bullshit meter goes off because you hear entrepreneurs and marketers say things like that. But as a consumer of your product that wears it virtually every day now, I can tell you, you are absolutely correct. Wearing my thousand helmet enhances my experience of being on, whether it's an e-bike or to your point earlier, you know, I live in Santa Cruz, we're close to the beach. And so everyone around here, we have beach cruisers and we love to get around that way. So whether it's the new e-bikes or the old style beach cruisers, love them. But on the beach cruisers prior to you, I never wore a helmet and now I do. And so um, there's something legendary. If we could just, I want to go back to category in a sec, but about the design, you know, as I look at this wonderful helmet, first of all, it looks cool. You've hit some magical blend of kind of a retro Steve McQueen or, you know, the old images of people driving Vespas or cool old Indian motorcycles, or, or even, you know, back when Harleys were still cool. I'm not sure they still are, but so there's a retro vibe to it, but yet it's also uh, somewhat modern looking. You, you've clearly introduced something new. So sort of tell me about your deli- design philosophy. Yeah, I would say a couple of things. Um, our, our design philosophy overarching is to do three things in, in terms of every time we built a product because we, we believe these are inherent problems people experience in the recreational cycling category. And that's one style. 
again, things are built on a very functional basis without taking in mind that people have an emotional attachment to their bikes. So there's an emotional reason why they're riding them. So number one, style. The second is safety. Safety is brass tacks, table stakes to make sure everything we do not only kind of meets CPSC and CE compliance regulations, because those are the things that helmets have to do, but they exceed. And lastly, convenience. So you'll notice in our products too, you may or may not have used it, but there's that pop lock function. And you can kind of just throw a lock to your bike helmet and lock it up as you ride. Again, these are kind of just emotional friction points that we identified while riding. So that's the overarching philosophy. And when we talk about stylish, for us, that just means kind of frictionless, streamlined, really easy on the eyes silhouettes. So our our line works, you can see what we do with our products is they're very streamlined. We don't have a lot of lines in our product, like the form to a degree is supposed to be the function in a lot of ways. When you when you see a lot of the other helmets, you kind of see these racer stripes things they've got going on and how much more industry can we add. And for us, the more of the philosophy is, can we just strip that away and can the stripped backness more than anything be a style? So if you notice our products, they're really just kind of streamlined and, and, and sleek. And, and beautiful color choices and combinations. Absolutely gorgeous. Wonderful. You could take the same helmet and, you know, me being the kind of dude I am, I have the black on black and I like that. But you could take that same helmet and you have all these wonderful bright colors that I assume generally appeal more to gals than maybe guys. And then you have that one that I forget what that was. It, it sort of speaks to kind of that old racing stripe yeah. sort of, uh, uh, you know, 60s Mustang era kind of color palette with the white. And and so tell me a little bit. You know, very rarely in entrepreneurship or marketing do we talk about the power of color. Yeah. And so tell me about from a design perspective, there's you seem to be guided from some true north around choosing colors that are really endearing. That's uh this might just be a personal thing of mine where I love colors. Like for me, I'm a material I'm a colors, materials, and finished geek. Like if I <laughs> for me, like when I painted my house white, I, I lined up twelve, you know, little patches of white. And my trim is a different color white and my actual paint is a different white. There's a different sheen in every part of the house, depending on the function of the house. So, so part of it is just like my OCDness with color. But the, the second part is to your point, it is that color does invoke different things in people. You have what we call the stealth black. To your point, we try to strike kind of a retro feel and a modern feel to our helmets. Um, that kind of stealth black version is supposed to be on the more modern side in the sense that that, that is a trend that's happening where the term is called murdered out, where people kind of black on black on black everything. But then you've got a very classic helmet where we have our like kind of a vintage Navy helmet. Um, that's, you know, those were direct kind of Pantones back from like Ford 1940s and 50s cars with kind of those um, camel leather straps. Again, representative of like the seats you kind of find in those cars back then. And then you've got those customers who probably aren't rooted in their 40s and 50s color palettes that I really love or kind of the modernness of um, the black on black. And you kind of want people who, who do it from a safety reason. So we got super fun, vibrant, bright colors because it's summertime and people want to be seen from a safety perspective. So it's trying to understand our customers and all of the reasons of why they might want a certain color. And again, for me, it always goes back to like, there's the execution where things need to be beautiful and high quality, but it always goes back down to like, well, what could the customer be thinking right now? What problem are they encountering when they decide to pick up a helmet choice? Yeah, They just want to look super cool like all murdered out black helmet, or do they want to have something that's a little brighter in the summertime or they want something from a safety perspective? So it's kind of trying to, again, get a good understanding of what that customer wants at the end of the day. Well, extraordinary job on the color uh, as well as the design. 
And then one of my favorite expressions, Gloria, is complexity is the enemy of revenue. I agree. And well, clearly, because your product, and I say this in the most laudatory way, is simple. Yeah. It's clean. Earlier, I used the word elegant. And so, for example, uh, let me tell you some things about your product, if I could. Please. (laughs) This incredible idea you have about pop this little, um, what is this, about maybe twice the size of a quarter, this little hole on the side open, and that way I can just put it through my bike lock. And if I don't want to carry it into wherever I'm going, I don't have to. Now, that might not sound like a huge innovation to some, but I've not seen that elsewhere. Um, Tell me about a little simple sort of innovation like this and why it's on my helmet. Yeah. And and again, I I would go back to like, we were trying to solve different problems for a different type of customer group. Again, we weren't trying to make the most technologically advanced helmet with Bluetooth or sensors in it. Um, We never heard that was a concern for our customers. So what we did here kind of time and time and again is commuter customers specifically hated bringing their helmets into their offices I, I rode. I ride my bike to the office at that time too. So did I. I kind of felt like I'm trying to be this professional here, and I, I have this like um, helmet that makes me look like I'm a 13 year old skateboarder, like walking to the office. So for me too, I was just like, well, okay. Well, I want to be able to leave it behind. I don't want to just clip it there because in LA, if it's not attached to something firmly, it's going to get stolen. I'm. Sure, I think you're out in San Francisco. I'm sure it's the same there too. So that was just the idea then. Can we make some sort of really secure hole that is is, is virtually unbreakable um, that you can throw a lock to that people can kind of lock onto their helmets? Um, Do we want to make a big gaping hole in the helmet? No, no, it doesn't look super, super like safe if you make a big gaping hole. So can we can we cover it super seamlessly? And again, you can probably you're playing around with it right now. There's kind of also like a little fun magnetic touch. So for us, it's kind of like also when you're you're solving a problem you have to have people enjoy the solution as well. So it can't just be a pure functional thing. People have to kind of enjoy playing around with something, just that tactile feel. Well, and the magnet pulls it right back into, you, you, you know, if I use my finger here to pop out the, the, the little piece, then I do that. It just pops back in because of the magnet. And the other thing too is I didn't read in a manual what this was or how right. to use it. I saw it on my helmet and I thought, hmm, and I noticed that it was more than just a logo. And I, I did exactly this. I stuck my finger in the side of it. It popped out. And I thought, I bet you I know why that's there. Yeah, totally. I, I, I think that's, to your point, like product design, again, I think we had talked a lot about colors, materials, finishes, again, just like the taste elements. But for me also, there is a belief that design is just solving people's problems at the end of the day. So like, can you identify what those are and can you make people feel like there weren't problems to begin with? Again, that feeling of using something else in your product, people are like, oh, I never even realized they were supposed to be pain points. And I think that's what we try to accomplish with every new product we develop. Now, there's something else I'd like to tell you about your wonderful product, if I could. Please. I mean, I love the compliments, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wouldn't say it if I didn't, uh, if it wasn't true and I didn't believe in what you're doing. I, on a very regular basis, sometimes daily, certainly multiple times a week, will do the following. Walk into a grocery store wearing your helmet, not knowing I'm wearing your helmet. Uh, Come home, put my bike away, walk into the house, start doing something in the house, only to either have my wife tell me or maybe catch a glimpse of myself in a mirror when I realize I'm still wearing a thousand helmet. (laughs) 
And so the other thing that you've done, which is incredible because, you know, as a longtime mountain biker, uh, you know, I think the Giro guys do a great job and all that. And I, I'm not sure I know any mountain bikers who don't, the minute they stop riding, take off their helmet. And the fact that I could walk into my house and be in my house for, you know, several moments or minutes or, or, or the other day I went to CVS to pick something up and I was standing there talking to the pharmacist. And she says, oh, that's a really cool helmet you have on. And I literally, Gloria, did not remember I was wearing your helmet. And so there's something about the comfort of this thing that is truly unusual. Can you tell me about how you figured out? And I have a big, stupid head. How did you figure out how to make a helmet that'll even work for a giant, uh, weird head like mine? Well, no, I appreciate it, Chris. I I mean, a lot of it comes down to the quality of uh, materials that we use. So, so the foam, for example, is a little bit, again, we, we because they're so, because our, our helmet is so stripped back in terms of what's there, we really, really make sure that we really emphasize all the details that they're hundred percent right. If you kind of feel our foam quality against just the standard foam quality, you'll, you'll see that, that the bounciest is a little bit higher for ours. You also see the seams of ours are also, um, I forget the technical term right now, but they're also compressed over. So there's there's two ways to leave that. You can leave the edges undone, but you might kind of feel a scratch when you're riding the helmet, or you can kind of compress those edges. Compressing the edges costs a, a buck more from a product perspective, but again, it helps the comfort. So it's for me, it's just all of the little details that make up the product. So, so I wouldn't say, I would say we extremely focused on comfort more than anything we did do though, is we extremely focused on every single detail that would affect the customer's experience. Well, it shows, uh, and it shows in every men- in every aspect of your business. I want to get to the category on your website, uh, as well, if we could also before the helmet, uh, we leave the helmet. I also wanted to let you know as a bald guy, how much I appreciate your helmet because there's nice ventilation in it but there's not too much ventilation. So I'm not going to get, if I'm out during the sun, I'm not going to get a burn through the ventilation. At least I haven't yet. And the other thing um, is as a bald guy, um, you know, living in Santa Cruz, there can be a 30, 40 degree swing. And so if I go over to a buddy's house, like I did the other night uh, for a late afternoon beer and enjoy the sunset, and we jazzed around on our bikes, him and his thousand helmet, <laughs> me and mine, went back to his place, enjoyed a beer as the sunset. And then afterwards I went home. Well, j- as the sun starts to set, particularly this time of year where I live, the temperature changes dramatically. And so as a bald guy, um, people with hair or, or people who are follically enabled um, <laughs> don't realize how much warmth you get from hair. And so in a situation like that, living where I live, I have a beanie with me. And so on my visit to my friend, I'm not wearing the beanie. Then when the sun starts to set and I'm going to head home, I put the beanie on and then I put your helmet on. And with some other helmets, it can be itchy or scratchy or the, the beanie will get sort of crunched up and, you know, it sort of gets fucked up with the beanie and the helmet. And somehow the adjustability and sort of the, the design, I don't know, you'll tell me, but for me as a bald guy, wearing a beanie under your helmet, it all works perfectly. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It's, it's also part of probably our head form. So again, you can pick lots of different head forms when you're in the helmet category. You can make Western fit helmets, you can make Asian fit helmets, and, and those kind of decisions you, you choose um, affects comfort for one group or another, we, we pick more of a universal fit and we've got a thinner set of padding systems. So, so 
part of the point is if you need to throw like a thin bald cap under it, or you need to throw like just a gator or, or um, something just to keep you warm, you can, because there's, there's more give in it than like a Western fit helmet. That's pretty tight around the edges. Well, again, nice work. Now I am also, as you can tell by, by me buying e-bikes and so forth. Um, I'm fascinated by this mobility space. And uh, there's a couple elements I'd love to tease out with you. The first one is, I remember very clearly when Dean came and launched the Segway. As a matter of fact, I was at TED when he brought the Segway to TED when it was still, if I'm not mistaken, in, in beta or maybe even advanced alpha and was letting people play with them and all that. This is back in the old days when TED was the TED that it was and it was in Monterey. It wasn't the massive thing that it is today. And I remember thinking... That is a very cool idea and a very dorky looking product. And of course, they raised a tremendous amount of VC and Dean Dean was a real visionary entrepreneur. And he talked about transforming mobility inside of cities and changing pollution and changing gridlock and transforming rush hour and all this stuff that was very laudatory in terms of a vision for a company. And of course, none of that happened. And the Segway became uh, something that uh, mall cops and dorky tourists use and, and the category sort of died. But interestingly enough, in the last handful of years, maybe decade or so, hopefully you'll, you'll educate me. Um, in the ashes of the Segway, a whole set of new innovations around technology and categories of mobility, whether it's skateboards or scooters or e-bikes and, and, and this, those hover things, whatever they were called. Um, and so there seems to be this explosion in um, these new mobility categories. Can you tell me a little bit about what you see there and how that influenced your uh, decision to start Thousand? Yeah, for sure. Um, the the timing is actually a lot quicker maybe than you think too. Probably in this past five to six years is really when you're seeing these alternative forms of uh, mobility. People call it micro mobility sometimes too. But the um, I think the entrance really started with I would say probably, again, I'll go back to the problem that we see in the U.S., which is probably similar to what you were learning from Dean, where you see that 60% of the trips that happen in the U.S. Um, are actually under three miles. I, I want to say like an even bigger proportion are under one mile. So like that begs the question, then why are we getting around in our cars everywhere? In Los Angeles, for example, I think there's a eight parking spaces for every one car. And we're constantly sitting in traffic here. So, so again, you're seeing the system doesn't totally make sense. And I think what you're seeing in a rise in micromobility or urban mobility is people trying to solve those problems to say, can we start using alternative vehicles to get people around quicker? Because most people are going under three miles. And also now people are just stuck in their cars because the infrastructure was never built to support it. So you've got entrances like Super 73. I, I think they started maybe six seven years ago, actually right around when we were starting and we talked to each other, I think in the early days, we, we found each other like at a trade show where we were both the oddballs and we didn't fit in, <laughs> we didn't fit into the category. Um, then you've got your boosted boards, your evolved skateboards. You've got these hyper like electronic skateboards that you can actually commute for like three, four miles on. And then you started to see kind of the rise in shared mobility, which is the Ubers and the Limes and the lifts of the world trying to take on that one mile and under riding. So you, you, you see, I think what you're seeing is cities recognizing that we have to change the way getting around works because it's not working so well. So you've got a lot of vehicles that are coming on board. And for, for Thousand, it was to understand that there's this huge rise in urban mobility, alternative mobility. Safety, though, has not changed. 
the infrastructure for cities in the US was really built around cars. So if people are trying to take this urban mobility, there's going to be a big problem because roads aren't set up for it. So so we saw, honestly, a need to fill that gap. Um, again, there's this rise in mobility and there's not a rise in safety because infrastructure is not changing. And it's probably going to be another 15, 20 years before our, our cities are probably super set up for this kind of mobility. There needs to be a safety category player in here that can take on the needs of all of these non-traditional vehicles. Yes, an insanely brilliant insight. And one of the things I share with entrepreneurs, marketers, and category designers all the time, because I get asked all the time, you know, how do you see new categories? How do you spot category opportunities? And one of the ways you do it is by realizing that new categories open up potential for new categories. And now I use you as an example, this new mobility, micro mobility, broad category with all these subcategories we've been talking about starts to emerge. And sure, there are helmets out there. And, and a helmet isn't a new category unto itself. But when you uh, attach your company, your brand, and ultimately your product to this new emerging category and categories in micromobility, you have, in my words, niche down. And so, yes, there are other helmets, but you created massive differentiation by focusing on an emerging a set of categories to really create your own category. That's how I see it. But how do you see it? Uh, no, I really agree. I think for, for me, when people always ask us, who do you think your competitors are? I was like, I don't feel like we have any. And in the sense of we weren't really ever trying to compete with, with other helmet manufacturers. Like we, we kind of didn't do anything they were trying to do. A marketing mentor of mine once told me, Gloria, your success is hinged on your lack of understanding of anything that's happening in the bike industry. <laughs> and, he, and he made it, you know, it was, I think it was a compliment or a version of a compliment, but, but it was that he was just like, you don't know anything about anything about this industry. And that's actually an advantage to you. So what you can do is you can see this rising market of again, micro mobility or urban mobility in a way these large entrenched companies aren't. So it really was that for, for us, we just really quickly realized, again, urban mobility, micromobility, people who adopt into that, they're early adopters. So they, they are non-traditionalists already. So for us, it's really trying to position 1,000 as the non-traditional company. Again, we wouldn't consider ourselves a helmet company because we're developing more things. We, we consider ourselves more of a safety company, but it, it really is to lean into that. It, it's not to try to do anything anyone else is doing. Um, any competitive analysis, I think, are useful to understand where pricing and kind of features are. But beyond that, to kind of look to see what a larger player is doing, I think, is maybe counterproductive because you're not a larger $100 million company. And you, from my perspective, you shouldn't compete like one. Right. Remind me what the price is of a thousand helmet compared to your standard sort of uh, a street, you know, uh, bike helmet or mountain biking helmet. Yeah, so the thousand helmets eighty nine dollars for our heritage helmet. We have an upgraded version, which is about a one thirty five. And wh which one is this one that I have? That's the heritage one. That's okay, the other one's a little more modern of a vibe. This one's a little bit more of a retro of a vibe. Is that is that a fair? Yeah, yeah. It's in the other ones. Um, just has different features too, just just slightly for again a different type of rider. And so how does that compare as a percentage on a percentage basis, excuse my ignorance, from sort of a, a reasonably good quality mountain bike helmet that you or I might buy for that that application? 
Yeah, for I would say an urban style helmet, the one you have, Chris, is probably 60 to 90 bucks. And um, that commuter helmet more that we developed is you could probably press it anywhere at like 100 to 150. So our, our pricing too, I would try to say we don't price from a premium perspective. We price from an attainable perspective. Again, our mission is to get more people safe. So we're not really trying to price people out of the market. We want people to be able to opt in. Um, we, we do have to price a little bit higher end of the threshold just because of the quality of our materials. But um, the goal is always to be within range of what the, the customer can bear in terms of cost. Even though you are not a massive premium, you are a slight premium to a traditional type helmet. Yeah, but we're a slight premium, but not a massive premium. Not not premium pricing, attainable pricing. We're not a value brand, though, in terms of pricing. Right, right. Now, uh, and this part of the conversation is um, this might be tough for me, so please excuse me in advance. I would like to turn to the safety aspect of this. How many people a year do you know, Gloria, die um, using bikes or other mobility products from not wearing helmets? Do we have good good data on that? The, the data is uh, a little unclear, um, especially in the U.S. The numbers change, and they're a couple of years outdated. But there's a couple of hundred, couple hundred thousand accidents that people have to go to the hospitals for every single year because of, again, people getting on urban mobility. There's a big rise in shared mobility when that started to happen. There was a big rise in um, hospital injuries. So that's a number we're clear on. So 200,000 roughly go to the hospital as a result of a head injury without a helmet, something like that? I, I, I don't want to be imprecise, but the last numbers I saw were 100 to 200,000 that go to a hospital because of a large injury. Um, I think one interesting thing that I really love to see a thousand is because we started on a mission, not necessarily to compete with other helmet manufacturers. We started on a mission to get people who weren't wearing helmets to wear helmets. We get letters every month, every week at this point of people who say your helmet saved my life because I never thought or considered of wearing a helmet before, but because your product, you know, fits X, Y, and Z for me, I started wearing it, got in a bad accident and this helmet saved my life. Um, and we had a really honestly powerful stat from last year. I think we had 278 accident replacement guarantees. And what that means to us is we actually have a policy, again, based on our mission that um, if you ever get into a crash with your helmet, that thousand will just replace it for free. Uh, so we, we had, I think, 278 people take us up on it last year. So understanding that we were helping, again, a couple hundred people a year make sure that they can save safe while they're riding for us is a nice real-time indicator and metric we can kind of point to as a team to kind of get us going on our mission that, that we're helping save lives so on on this front gloria i just want to really thank you because i shared as i shared with you when i first reached out one of my best friends a man i love dearly a father of three 17 15 and 12 year old this past summer was on an electric skateboard. Uh, he just got on it to go down the street, check something out, and come, come home. Uh, he had a horrible accident. We don't know what happened. Uh, there weren't witnesses or video. But he, he was found in the street by a group of bikers. And they called 911. And then they picked up his phone and they called his emergency contact, who was his wife, a woman I deeply love. And um, he went into the hospital, 
had uh, he had suffered um, a horrible traumatic brain injury, and um, about a month later we lost him. So sorry, ma'am. And um, losing this man has been absolutely horrific for our family. I'm proud of how we've come together since since we lost him. I still can't believe he's gone. It seems so fucking surreal. And long before I knew your name, after that happened, we just started buying your helmets for people in our family. And, um, you know, who knows whether he'd be alive if he was wearing one of your helmets. But I bet he, he would have had a better shot than not. And so for those 278 people, I just want to say thank you for what you do. I want to say thank you for keeping our family safer than we otherwise would be. And our hearts are broken. And one of the reasons I really, really desperately wanted to have this conversation with you and and frankly to share you with the world is uh, we don't want this pain to be suffered by any other family. And the degree, the degree to which you and the other wonderful helmet manufacturers in their various uh, categories and areas of focus are helping to save lives and uh, make sure other families don't have to go through this unimaginable pain from the bottom of my heart, Gloria. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm sorry, Chris. I, I Again, I, I don't even know what that would feel like. And... I think the fact that you're trying to have your listeners understand the importance of wearing any safety product doesn't even have to be ours. Uh, I think speaks volumes that you're, you're trying to make an impact and have a legacy based on, based on his life. So I honestly, thank you for, I think, trying to help others learn a painful lesson. Well, thank you for being my partner in that. <clears throat> and I, I would, if, if you don't mind, like you to talk about, you mentioned their standards in your industry, the IUD and FART standards or whatever they're called. Maybe tell me about those standards. And you said that you tried to do things to go beyond those standards. So maybe tell me about how you, Gloria, and the rest of your team think about um, safety. Yeah, I mean, safety is why we started um, Thousand in a lot of ways. Again, we were on a mission to help save lives. If if we just wanted to make money, there's like a lot of ways <laughs> to, to, to do that. Helmets probably is like not, not the traditional thing to think of. This this really was a mission to try to get more people wearing helmets. Um, for us, when we think about safety, there are there are two main tests that you you kind of aim towards. One in the U.S. it's called CPSC. Um, in the EU, there's one called CE. And there's a there's a couple of things that happen as a result of you building a helmet. One, it's making sure like the the structure of the helmet is sound from an impact perspective so that the helmet can withstand, um, it's about a 300 Gs of force. So again, part of that testing that happens is you're dropping a helmet from one story high, it hits the ground and it's seeing how much force it can sustain from different sorts of angles to mimic the different angles people might fall off of their scooter, bike, skateboard. There's other tests that happen that go along with, again, making sure helmets are compliant with those two standards. And another one is like the, the retention test. So um, it's it's making sure the helmet uh, strap can't come off you when you're riding. So again, we, we, build, we, we build product to exceed all of those safety tests 
to make sure they're also resistant for different climates as well. So heat, rain, um, cold, all of those things to make sure the product integrity holds up. We do batch testing for every product run that we do, internal testing, just to make sure product quality is consistent. We do external testing uh, to make sure those results are validated by third parties labs. And I would say for us, safety is, is, is brass tacks and, and part of our mission. So for us, those are, I think, the fundamentals of what we need to get done every day. And maybe help me understand what 300 Gs of force means in the real world. So on my new juiced bike, uh, there we have class two bikes. And so they're capped at about 20 miles an hour. You can kind of nudge them a little bit beyond that, but not, not too far. And so were I to crash at 20 miles an hour wearing my thousand helmet and my head were to hit the pavement, how many Gs of force you know, I'm a roughly a 200 pound, six foot guy. Do you have a sense for how many G's of, of force my head would be hitting the pavement with? It's hard to say because it, it depends on a lot of different factors, angle, um, like what you're writing, uh, different things. So I, I couldn't tell you off of the top of my head. Here's an example of what maybe 200, 300 G's of force is. Again, from a little bit of above a one story building. So I, I want to say it's like 12 to 14 feet up from the air. A helmet is put into like kind of a head form and it is dropped from the ceiling and it lands on different types of pins. So there's like a ballpoint one that maybe is representative of rock. There's something flat that's maybe concrete and it's dropped at different angles. It's making sure the helmet can sustain that amount of force because really what a helmet is supposed to do, again, there's a, there's an impact that happens. It's supposed to relieve pressures of force. So, uh, if anything is above 300 Gs of force, your helmet should crack because actually in an, in an incident like that, your helmet probably should always crack because it's relieving force. If a helmet cracks too quickly, though, it's not relieving enough force. So again, the, the standards in the U.S. are around 250 to 300 Gs of force that a helmet needs to be able to, to sustain. Europe's a little bit different. But I would say if someone is going out there and it doesn't have to be ours, to buy some sort of helmet out there, I would always look for a CPSC label to make sure that your helmet can, can withstand that impact. And maybe help me uh, understand. So if we were to take a, um, that anvil drop, how much more protected am I when I'm wearing your helmet as opposed to not wearing a helmet? Is there a percentage way of thinking about this or how should I think about the difference between not wearing a helmet and wearing a helmet when I have a serious impact along these lines? Again, it's hard to give percentages. So I, I'm not sure I can do that like accurately. I guess I equate helmets more to, to seatbelts in a lot of ways. What's the impact you have when you get into a major accident and you don't have anything restraining you and keeping you from like kind of going out of a window and what is that impact now when you have something restraining you and keeping you into the window? Like it, it's hard to quantify those numbers because again, every accident is a little bit different. Um, but, but for me, I would say very reasonably at the end of the day, you're doing something that could potentially help save your life. So I would always recommend people just to wear a helmet. Um, even if you're going on a beach cruise down the street, you never know again that the guy next to you who's just cruising down and might plow someone over. Yes. And you're talking to a person who'll never get in a uh, mobility device of any kind, uh, even beach cruiser without wearing, um, wearing a helmet. And one thing I don't know that most people realize, I didn't know this myself, Gloria. 
when my loved one suffered this horrible traumatic brain injury, we were lucky enough to have his case reviewed by um, literally one of the top neurosurgeons in, uh, in the world at UCSF. He was injured in San Jose and he was in a hospital there. Um, but we were able to get to her and have her, her review his entire case, all of his scans and all that stuff. <clears throat> anyway, so we had a front row seat uh, from a layman's perspective about uh, uh, TBI, traumatic brain injury. And what I learned is it's stunning how much we don't know about the brain. And the reality of the fact is, and again, I'm no doctor, so caveat, caveat, caveat. But at least my understanding is when a serious brain injury like that happens, there's actually very little that uh, modern medicine can do. They relieve pressure. Uh, they relieve fluids. They do some anti-seizure meds. They do some things to try to stop swelling and so forth and so on. If required, they have to cut part of the, the um, skull to a, if, the, if the brain is swelling to give it room. These are the things that I understand. Again, I'm the furthest thing from a doctor. But, but the insight for me was our ability to help somebody who's had a TBI uh, medically is actually fairly limited. Our, our understanding of how to deal with TBI, even the greatest doctors in the world, they don't have a lot of tools at their disposal, given where we are in the, the development of medical science. And I know there's leaps and bounds being made all the time, and there's been incredible progress in the last even 10 years. So... But all that said, there was very, very little that we could do um, to deal with this. And uh, once it became clear the extent of his injuries, it, it, it was done. And so um, I just share that with you to underscore the importance of wearing a helmet because uh, not only can the impact be severe, but the reality is it's not like when you break uh, a bone um, where we have lots of things that we can do. People who suffer a TBI are in many ways at the whim of how that injury sort of uh, develops. And if it develops within a certain sort of range, then there are things that the medical profession can do. And then there can be a long recovery and therapy and all sorts of things. Um, but if it goes beyond some point of severity, we discovered in the most painful way possible even the greatest doctors in the world. There's no amount of money. There's no amount of anything. If you have a TBI of a certain kind, there's nothing that can be done. And again, I'm, I don't even know how you had to go through this. This, this must have been incredibly painful for you and your family. And I, I have heard the same thing. Again, my, my friend who passed away, I, I'm still in touch with his wife and his son. And she told me the same thing that even if Mike had survived, doctors said he would have been immobile, um, wouldn't have been able to speak just because, again, when there's an injury kind of that bad, then there's not much you can do. So, again, I, I, I don't want to scare people into feeling that they have to wear a helmet. Again, our part of our mission is trying to create behavior change and making people want to wear a helmet instead of um, feeling they're forced to. But, but I think you really are underlining the consequences aren't just it's a it's a leg sprain um, and you you'll be back on your feet in a couple of months. The consequences again for for this kind of stuff is is sadly just way more 
way more deadly, way more grave. And I, and I think a lot of it can be prevented if, if again, we, we make choices to be more safe. Hmm. As a side note, we lost a Mike too. Really? Yeah, his name was Michael. So um, you've also um, funded the company, from what I understand, Gloria, in a, a certain, kind of an interesting way. Can you take me to the beginnings and as you're dreaming and scheming and putting your plans and ideas down and on paper? And can you bring me to the sort of uh, the early startup days of the company? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I started Thousand, maybe like a lot of entrepreneurs in my garage, where again, when I had this idea, I was I was still working a full time job um, at, at Tom's in their philanthropic department. So I, I did this nights and weekends. And my goal at that time was I had about twenty thousand dollars in my savings account, and it was just to to use that to get to a prototype and hopefully find more money. I really didn't know how. My my idea was maybe you know twenty k is a lot cheaper than getting an MBA. So I, if nothing else, I'm going to learn a lot <laughs> doing this. So when we launched the company, we we launched on Kickstarter mostly because I needed more money to fund the molds I needed to buy for for helmet manufacturing. It's it's a it's a really actually like cost heavy industry. Like you're you're putting hundreds and thousands of dollars um, into these molds and safety testing and all of these things to get off the ground. So I launched on a Kickstarter, trying to launch raise I want to say twenty k for the initial down payment on the molds. I was trying to do a friends and family kind of throw in a dollar <laughs> situation. Ended up raising close to a quarter million in our first 30 days. No paid marketing, just people sharing it through Facebook and email. Uh, and, and that was kind of it. And, and I think it's because the problem resonated with a lot of people. And, and so did the solution. From there, I, I will say we probably took a more non-traditional path in the sense that we bootstrapped the business from there on out. We had a lot of offers to you know, fund it this way or that way. And, and for us, like our again, our goal was... I'm not saying we're not trying to build a big business because we are trying to build a big business, but but we had goals to be a mission-oriented business uh, again. And we have a lot of core values that we believe in, diversity, sustainability, community, impact, uh, integrity. So in the way that we wanted to accomplish building a business was more important to us in terms of the, the total dollar amount at the end of the day. So for, for the first five years of our life, we just bootstrapped it. We just took the profits of the business and just used cash flow and, um, you know, leveraged some credit cards and kept on building until again, we're like 25 people now, eight figures profitable. The goal is to build bigger from here and, and to really expand our vision to making tools for urban travelers. Again, those people traveling around under three miles in urban cities, how can we make sure we can make safety seamless for them? But uh, I will also encourage entrepreneurs, there's different paths than saying from day one, once you have an idea, how can I get funding? Um, make things that solve people's problems and treat customers well and manage the cash flow of your business well. I, I do believe you can build a really healthy business without having to raise millions of dollars from BC. It's interesting that you say that, Gloria, because one of the things I find myself saying to particularly younger entrepreneurs who are in the shoes that you were in five or so years ago is never forget customers are the greatest venture capitalists. I totally agree. <laughs> at, at, at the end of the day, if you treat, I really genuinely believe this. If you treat customers well, you build them a quality product where you're not trying to take as much money out of their pocket as possible. And if there's a problem that ever arises, you treat them well, guess what happens? They tell their friends about it. They tell their friends of friends. Stores want to have you in their shop because they want to do business with people with integrity. And the numbers kind of work out. 
you and you just try to spend less than than you you know you're not trying to buy the big fancy office and have snacks for all your employees every day with the tennis court like you, you just try to run. There's no tennis court, Gloria. I mean, maybe that's a 2022 thing, Chris. But <laughs> for now, there, there is no tennis court at Thousand. Um, but at the end of the day, again, I, I think you can build a really big business where your mission is the forefront of of your business. We, we became a public benefit corporation last year. So again, for us, that means we have not only our stakeholders um, to worry about, we took a little money at the end of last year just for economy reasons. Uh, and then, but we also have a social mission to, again, to make sure we're accountable to. So again, I, I do believe there's a way to build your business where you're not having to grow at all costs and you're doing things that you actually don't believe in at the end of the day, but you're trying to satisfy um, the person who gave you a check. You, you can build a business based on how you believe a business should be run. And we really want them to be run in, the, in America. So. Again, putting it out there for entrepreneurs who always ask me, how do I raise money? You don't have to raise money. You can just build a great business that supplies value to customers to the degree that there's enough cash flow in the business to build in a significant way. Yes. Amen. Hallelujah, sister. Uh, very inspiring that you did it that way. Now, I also want to ask you about many of the companies in your category broadly are uh, B to B to C in, in that they sell through a retail channel. Um, my understanding is that you are primarily, if not exclusively direct, uh, through your own website, but tell me about your distribution channel and, and how you think about, um, being more of a direct to consumer company. Yeah, for, for us, it was, that was, I mean, that was a simple one at the beginning. When you see, um, Titans, Titans in your category competing off a of distribution, you kind of say to yourself, well, I'm not going to do that <laughs> in terms of the path that they're going down. But Why? Most people in business compete and compare and leverage off of this, the models and approaches that have historically been used. Why did you look at the historical model and go, no, 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 we're going to do something different? I mean, for, <laughs> for me, we didn't have the money to do it. <laughs> it was a good, good answer. And in the sense that like you see distribution channels that these guys have built up and it's super impressive. They've got thousands of stores across the U.S. They got 20 reps repping every single city. Um, their goal is, and they've got these massive sales programs that give dealers, you know, there was, when we, we started in this market, we heard of one dealer giving 365 day terms. That means you don't have to pay for a product until one year after you get it into your inventory. So for us, it was just simply saying, we can't compete on that. And if we compete off of that with the amount of resources we have, we'll die. And that was, so that was a really simple decision. But from a D to C perspective, it was more of that mantra that we had that the consumer should be first. So for us, we wanted to be able to speak directly to our consumer because we also believed we had something more to say than look at this uh, price to value product that we created. It's really nice. Shouldn't you buy it? We, we were a values driven brand. So we wanted to tell people our better values in terms of how we feel like business should be done better from sustainability. We, we give back 1% of our revenue every year to um, sustainability, diversity, community, uh, nonprofits. We we had like a big emphasis on, again, of just like creating a, again, creating this good business where the customer is first. Um, so again, we also want to be able to talk to our customers. Like where customer experience or customer service is an industry where you're usually judged about how many tickets you can accomplish, literally how many customers you can get through quickly every single day. For us, we kind of grade ourselves on like 
did we make people happy? Did we listen to someone from an empathetic perspective to really understand their problems? And are we, are we hearing them and then providing them a solution that they can kind of be happy about? So again, direct consumer for us was also just an approach we felt like accomplished the model of what we were trying to do as a business better. These days, our distribution is about like 70% D2C, but we, we've got about 30% really committed retailers that believe in our, our vision as well. So for us, it's not necessarily trying to be digitally exclusive. For me, it's really trying to be where are our end customers at and how can we service them the best? But it sounds like, uh, correct me if, if this is not the right interpretation of what happened, Gloria, that the reason you now have retailers is because you went direct to customers you pioneered a new category. You brought true innovation to the marketplace. And I'm guessing you'll tell me that some of those retailers woke up and gave you a call and said, hey, Gloria, you guys look pretty awesome. Can we sell this shit? Is that what happened or tell me what happened? <laughs> yeah, no, that's 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 what happened. But uh, and I think but you know what? That's such a for me. That's such also in a service to the re- dealers, like because you also have to understand these retailers are struggling and they they are being over leveraged by some brands who are being like buy thirty thousand of my inventory or we're not going to sell to you. I, we want this much of display shelf in your store or we're not going to sell to you. And you know the retailers also just trying to make enough of a living to be able to you know support their family and so on and so forth. So for us, our model is more to say, hey, we're going to build up a lot of consumer awareness and demand online. And we let the consumer pick wherever they want. We hope they pick our .com so they can learn more about our brand and our values and what we believe in. But we are certainly happy for them to go learn about it from our retailers who also equally believe in our mission and vision. So at the end of the day, the retailer is very happy because they're still making their standard margin. We don't discount as a brand. So, so they're not having to constantly mark down. And they're getting that new customer that they actually desperately want. They, they get a customer they can have for life. Can I tell you something about you're not discounting? Yeah, please. So, um, after, uh, Christmas, we thought, you know, we could probably use a couple extra helmets around here. And so I said to my wife, Carrie, I said, yeah, baby, let's go buy some more thousand helmets. And she said, yeah, I checked on their website. Nothing's on sale yet. I'm hoping something's going to go on sale later in January. And I said to her, I don't know, but something tells me this company's not putting their shit on sale. (laughs) (laughs) But Here's what we did do. I will say instead of Black Friday, what we do every year instead is we have a values driven campaign. So this year or this past year, the one thing we wanted to do for people is we knew we probably needed more unity in this country. It was a really difficult year. And the one thing we could kind of rally around together is the fact that we want to support people who are struggling, people who lost their jobs due to COVID, people who are disenfranchised like populations or minorities. So we In lieu of Black Friday, we did a holiday wish fulfillment campaign where we asked people just to send us what their wishes were, and we would pick the top five or six and just fulfill them. So again, we spent, (laughs) I want to say we spent 30 or 20 or 30 grand, but instead of giving discounts away, we gave them to our community members who needed the most. Gloria, hopefully it's appropriate for me to say this and you'll take it the way I mean it. I love you. I'll take it. Coming from you, Chris, I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I also, this may sound like a funny thing to want to talk to you about, but I want to ask you about your website. Because as a consumer, that's how I first experienced you after my wife discovered you. And the elegance of it, the simplicity of it, and the ease with which I can figure out what the fuck's going on, how to buy something, and place the order. (laughs) 
And that may not sound like an accomplishment to some people, but you and I both know there are massive brands with gazillions of dollars invested in their website. And you and I as consumers can't figure out what the fuck's going on, what we should buy, how one thing compares to another thing, whether we should buy the this one or the that one. And then we got to have a bot chat and the bot's a pain in the ass. And, and so there are many companies, some of the biggest brands in the world that are to this day have horrible UXs and are very hard to actually fucking buy from off their website. How have you been able to have this clarity, this simplicity, and dare I even say this elegance and beauty to your website? Well, thank you. One, I hope it's actually going to get a lot better. We hired a new product manager that I'm super excited about all the changes he's going to make in terms of enhancing the customer experience. But for me, it is just really simple. I think I think you made a good point earlier in our talk, which is complexity is like, you know, bullshit. It kind of kills kills things. And I, and I think a lot of companies are trying to optimize this and that and get this certain kind of uh, customer journey flow so they can convert more people in this way. Or a lot of times customers are trying to tell their story versus what the customer actually cares about. <laughs> so, so for us, can you just kind of remove all that stuff and ask at the end of the day, what is the customer here for? And can you get them what they need quickly? Again, for me, it's always like in every aspect of our business, how do we reduce friction for that customer? Is it our experience on our website? Is it the product you buy? Is it our customer service? Is it our marketing message? Whatever it is, it should feel easy um, when, when you're approaching our brand. One of the things I will say to people and sometimes not make friends with them as a result is, hey, you know, your website is so fully featured, it's impossible to use. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I, I think that's the thing too. You you kind of throw in all these features and cool kind of parallaxing this and that to, to make it a great customer experience. But at one point you're kind of just, you know, at some point it is just pride of authorship. How cool can I make this? How overbuilt can I make this compared to my competitor's website? But yeah. again, if I feel like you always, your, your true north is my customer and how am I serving my customer? It's a good filter for what you do and do, don't do as a business. Well, you've done an excellent job. Now, another thing I've been uh, very much wanting to ask you, but I want to preface this with, I hope there comes a day soon where sort of the, maybe if I could say need to ask you this goes away. You're a younger person, certainly younger than me. You're a female person and you're not a Caucasian person. And so uh, as an entrepreneur who bootstrapped uh, in an industry that you don't know, that I'm guessing, maybe you'll tell me, is, is somewhat male-dominated, and there's certainly a macho bike culture that I'm aware of. But So I'm very curious, as a younger, female, non-Caucasian person, what the entrepreneurial experience has been like uh, for you, and if there's anything you want to say about that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would say like when I first got into this industry, it was really difficult being, again, a, like to your point, a female minority. The cycling industry and the outdoor industry is largely white and it is largely male and it is largely probably over 40. So I, I kind of immediately when I went to my first trade show, I'm like, I'm very aware. <laughs> I'm very aware of how different I am right now. And I think I the difference in how I saw things now and where I am now is 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 different in the sense that I saw that as a disadvantage when I first started the business because I was such a sore thumb. Uh, I like stood out in every room and people also knew I stood out in every room that I really tried to minimize the fact that I was a minority, that I was a woman. You, sh I, you know, I tried to do a firm handshake and, 
you know, <laughs> I wore a watch so I could blend in with people over, over 40 and 50. <laughs> but at, at the end of the day, um, a good friend gave me advice that said, Gloria, one thing that probably stands out for you and that is more important is that you, you do stand out in a sea of everything that looks the same. So use that as your advantage. And I would say for me, that has been probably some of the best advice I've had so far because my perspective when it comes to how the cycling industry should embrace people of diversity is wildly different than probably people were traditionally thinking. So again, the bike industry used to be, hey, we're already set up. We're doing great. If you want to join us and adopt our cultures and adopt our lifestyle and our the things we wear, then great, join the cycling industry. And you know, that's the reason why the cycling industry never grew. But <laughs> if you can if you can kind of say to consumers, hey, we have this sport that we all love and we welcome your different cultures and your backgrounds and we want you to join us because we think you can make our industry better. That's a much better way to approach things. So I'd say my my perspective now is I really try to lean into my differences of understanding as a person of um, color that I probably see diversity in a much different way than people. As a woman um, in a sport that's been largely disenfranchised, single women, I, I see our our need and ability to get women to the sport to increase our market size in, in a much different way than other people who who take a, you know, the traditional industry. There's a term called pink it and shrink it. Just do what they were doing for men and make it smaller and make it pink. And for us, it's like, well, <laughs> how wait, do you... did you say pink it and shrink it? <laughs> yeah, it's a, real, it's a real term. <laughs> it's a real term. That's awesome. So, so again, it it is to say like it was difficult, but it has become easier when I realized my differences were my advantages. So, how do I leverage my advantages to build a better market? And at the end of the day, it's a market that's also uncontested like when you think about it it's pretty remarkable that large 100 million 200 million companies can't replicate what i'm doing just because <laughs> i have a different perspective um they can outprop me any day probably sure but at the end of the day brands are larger than just the things they put on the shelves it's also about how you speak to a customer and how you act so those things for me are, are kind of irreplaceable gloria i have a feeling that if there were some men early on who didn't take you seriously they sure should take you seriously now don't they <laughs> <laughs> you know chris i did feel a shift <laughs> in those early you did? conversations yeah was sure. there a when shift in the way people treated you at a certain point in the development of the company oh absolutely uh in, in the beginning people were clearly uh, then the term mansplaining people were kind of clearly mansplaining to me people told me the business i was doing was too niche to be successful um I for sure wasn't taken seriously in a lot of rooms that I entered. A lot of people didn't want to work with us because they didn't think it was a good idea. But again, once we got to a certain size and people saw us on the street a lot more, people started to listen. So again, like our outcomes proved maybe what they didn't inherently believe about us or just missed in terms of perspective about us. Um, so it's it was a nice shift <laughs> to not have to fight your way into every room and then to fight for your opinion to be heard in your room. It's been a nice change in this past five years. It feels like from from hearing you talk that maybe it's tipped. Do you feel like you've gone, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, I'm very curious, you've gone from sort of having a fight to be taken seriously to now people are coming to you, that it's it's sort of, it's tilted the other direction? Yeah, I would I would say there's a, there's a great industry organization in biking called People for Bikes, led by a new great CEO called Jen Dice. And, um, you know, she kind of approached me to be on their board. It's our industry organization for, for bikes to, 
she, they approached us to be on their board when we were a couple million dollar company. We had a very small voice, but she brought us in because we had a much different perspective than the outside industry. And she thought this industry was, this perspective was vital for the health of the overall industry. And I think now three, four years later, when we've proved that we're actually a, a good player and we can compete in a much larger way, it's it's more interesting in terms of how you're treated a little bit where you're not just kind of the sub opinion in the room where, where you're saying, hey, sustainability matters, diversity matters, like how we treat people matters beyond just like the dollars and cents of things. Now they're actually listening because you can make an economic case for why it's important. It's to say, hey, if you emphasize just products, you're, <laughs> you're competing against the 100 other people that are too. But if you're really trying to be in it for the people, the planet and profits, you're speaking to a whole nother category. You, you've opened yourself up to a new market. Yes. They are listening more because you proved it through, through your numbers. It's what my friend uh, Naveen Chada at uh, Mayfield Capital calls conscious capital and conscious VC, right? This notion that business today can't live in solely an economic paradigm, that we, we live in a world and ultimately businesses need to serve people. And I would argue it sounds like you agree. People need uh, the businesses need to serve the planet. That having one lens on our objective, profit or value, aka market cap or valuation, that's important. And I believe in capitalism very much so. And um, with only one lens, we're not taking into account the reality of the world that all of us live in. And it sounds like that's incredibly important to you. Totally agree. I think it's incredibly important. And I think for other businesses to understand, again, your efforts for creating social impact shouldn't be a line item. It shouldn't be compliance or something you have to do for CSR reasons. It can be a competitive advantage at the end of the day. If you're able to leverage your mission and your values so people believe in your brand and they, the brand resonates with them, think about your customer acquisition costs also. Your word of mouth goes way up. That's, that's way less money you're investing into paid ads. So I would encourage businesses to say, oh, yeah, great, let's do the right thing here and there. You can kind of overhaul your business and make your business something that is generating good every single time you make a dollar. And, and that's very possible and it could be a real competitive advantage for you. Again, if you leverage it the right way. <laughs> I love that. And the other thing I wanted to share with you, I'm sure you get told all the time, Gloria, that you're an inspiration to young entrepreneurs and young women entrepreneurs and uh, young, let's call it maybe diverse entrepreneurs. You must hear that a lot. Yes. Yeah. I think a lot of women who are getting into entrepreneurship and especially people who are people of color who don't see a lot of people like them, anytime I can help them, I'm, I'm really apt to help them because again, it's difficult. So yeah, to your point, Chris. I hopefully can. I think that's cool. I have no doubt you are a huge light for many, but I also want you to know you're talking to a guy who started his first business at 18 with no money, no experience, no relationships, no expertise, no fucking nothing. And I'm 52 now. And as a 52 year old white dude, you're an inspiring entrepreneur to me too. And so I think ultimately legendary entrepreneurs who design a new category that make an incredible difference to customers and do it the way you're doing it and uh, are on the kind of trajectory you're on. I don't give a shit what your background is or what color your skin is. If you're not inspired by that, you're not paying attention. And I find you an incredible entrepreneur. 
Thank you. I mean, again, that means a lot. That really does. And I appreciate it. Hopefully, again, we can do more work to kind of help more people. Now, Gloria, I could talk to you for 12 hours, but I, uh, I know you got a, a category and a business and a brand to build. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? I think you gave me a great platform to say the things I wanted to say. But again, I would say, again, if there's other entrepreneurs listening out there, I really do believe you can build a mission-driven vision and a values-driven business in a way that is sustainable, in a way that is big. And for me, it sounds like we both believe this. That's the way culture is going and should go. Uh, so so to take that into account that you're a real business owner that, that's doing powerful things if, if you can take on that approach. Well, I think that's an incredible message. And you're actually uh, walking your walk, not just talking it. And um, you're legendary. I love all things Thousand Helmets and Gloria. Thank you so much. And um you know, if you're open to it at a, at some point down the line, I would love for you to come back and, and give me an update on the business and, and how you're doing as you continue uh, forward in pioneering safety in this whole new mobility space. Yeah, I would love that, Chris. It's been awesome to talk to you. And again, I, I, I'm thankful for you for being so supportive of our mission and the things we're trying to do. So honestly, just thankful to have you as a customer. And I'm going to say friend now, not being corny, but I do consider Please. your friend now. So. I would love it. Please. And I'm, I'm supportive of the mission and I'm, uh, I'm an evangelist for thousand helmets. I think I, I would have been, had we not suffered the tragedy that we suffered, but when this one comes home and it hits your family, uh, and it changes your life and the lives of so many people you love and you never get to have another bourbon with a man you love dearly. Uh, so your mission speaks to me even more powerfully than it might otherwise. And I am grateful for you. Thank you. Super grateful for you, Chris. Thank you. Well, there she is, the legendary uh, Gloria Huang of uh, Thousand Helmets. And if you found her as powerful and inspiring as I did, why not share this episode with uh, 10,000 of your closest friends right now? <laughs> and speaking about things we should talk about right now, given this environment, every company needs a legendary platform. And that's where NetSuite by Oracle comes in. You see, NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, encompassing everything you need from finance, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. So you can manage your business with precision. Whether you're doing a million bucks a year or hundreds of millions, NetSuite gives you the visibility and control that you need to get through these kinds of times. Check out netsuite.com slash different today. And there you can schedule your free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different. My friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Tens of thousands of IT professionals, security professionals, and business leaders rely on Splunk to bring together disparate data. Data in motion, data at rest, structured data, unstructured data, it doesn't matter. Splunk brings data to every question, every decision, and every action. Check out splunk.com today. That's splunk.com slash D2E. All right, we would like to thank... The legendary and inspiring Gloria Huang. Thank you so much, Gloria. You can check out her company at explore1000.com. That's explore1000.com. My friends at onelifefullylive.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. And they've been making a difference for people in underserved communities for over a decade. Check out onelifefullylive.org today. My friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's first distant assistant company. If you need a legendary assistant who's nowhere near you, check out Bottleneck.online today. My friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out at 
R-E.net. And I want to remind you again, go to lockhead.com and sign up for Category Pirates, the authority on category design and category creation. And uh, if you can afford to make a difference right now, right now, why not do that? Dig into your wallet, help a local uh, faith-based organization, nonprofit, uh, somebody who's helping to feed people right now. Uh, most of our communities are in a lot of pain. And if you're lucky enough to be in a position to make a difference, why not do that? All right, I need to remind you that uh, the creators of this podcast were probably consuming libations, and all podcasts do contain nuts. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. Before acting on anything you heard today, please consult your doctor, lawyer, accountant, shaman, mother, and of course, bartender. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Lots to be grumpy about lately. <laughs> Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com and CategoryPirates.com. Coming soon, show notes by the wonderful Diane Gervasio. Remember to listen to Van Halen, drink Hintwater. For the love of God or whoever you love, please wear a helmet. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carsey, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. Please stay legendary, stay safe, and until we're together again, follow your different. <laughs>